The subject for the evening talk is transcendence or intimacy. For those who are sincerely and deeply interested in the spiritual life and its significance for the individual as well as the society and the globe, we are sometimes faced with rather perplexing and uh, sometimes problematic difficulties which may show themselves in a peculiar way in the actual flow of the teachings, in the way the teachings are uh, actually given. And one of the things which certainly does occur and here uh, is probably no exception in the way that they uh, may be heard, is that we get the view, either slowly or gradually or very quickly, that there is something uh, which we have to do. And when one looks at the variety of spiritual traditions, the various uh, uh, lineages and the various um, practices and attitudes which are given to us we, what we hear is there is something to do there are some traditions of course which insist upon a great deal of preliminary practices and that before a person is even ready to consider uh, contemplative work, uh, serious meditative work, he or she needs to have undergone a considerable uh, course of uh, training and discipline in preparation, in fact, for the kind of things which we are engaged in here. Sometimes a person looks at herself or himself in this kind of situation and says of oneself, well, when I look at myself, there are other things which I need to do first. And sometimes that may be uh, psychotherapy, that may be body work, that may be some easier or other course of journey which allows sufficient degree of preparation for that stillness and the facing not only of one's own existence but of existence itself. Sometimes we are told, and I have referred to, to this some days ago, the, n the necessity of uh, doing a great deal in the spiritual life on a long-term basis. The active cultivation of morality and uh, ethical foundations and principles, the uh, active awarenesses and influences of karma in one's life, the uh, cultivation of a range and variety of meditation methods and techniques, the exposure to teachers and gurus, the cultivation and development of kindness, compassion and wisdom. And then there are other teachers who will say to us, and the same messages can be inferred here, that we must be willing to, what we, must, what we need to do or be willing to do is to go to the vulnerable place inside of ourselves or that we must really let go or that we must abide with a, a choiceless awareness in life. All sorts of ways, useful 
and valuable of pinpointing what we must do. And as I say, for some it can become and does become quite confusing about the variety of things that we should do, ought to do, if we are going to be realized human beings, if we're going to discover that sweetness of an enlightened life, an awakened life. So the way that we listen matters, I would say, a great deal. Because if the way that we listen is such that the, la the impression that is left at the end of the listening, I have to do this first beforehand, then if you listen to one teacher, he or she may be consistently saying what we have to do beforehand, whatever that expose ourselves, or let go, or give up, or renounce, or um, uh, dramatic transformation beforehand, or whatever. And that may be targeted, that may be the particular individual message. And then, as I say, if we expose ourselves and contact to other teachers and teachings, they are also received. Is the residue impression, I ask again, is the residue impression, the idea, I have to do something. And I'm not saying that's appropriate message or an inappropriate message, but it certainly is necessary, I do feel, to be able to listen as clearly and as wholeheartedly as possible to what's the what the impact is, is on us when we put ourselves in contact with spiritual teachings, teachers, whoever and wherever we may be. And then sometimes when we explore in that area and in that field that sense of something which we must do or need to do, sometimes it's in a, a very simple form. And sometimes we have heard those of you who, say, have been exposed to transcendental meditation, as an example, where, and one still sees the advertisements in the Western newspapers, as well as here, of um, do TM 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, and some certainly have benefit, benefited considerably, and a number of scientific tests have been made which help to uh, give some confirmation shall we say, to the value of mantra meditation. But what easily happens, and certainly it's rather comparable here to yoga as well, that it becomes a particularization. It becomes a kind of one piece in a rather large jigsaw puzzle of the spiritual life, rather isolated and separated. And so in some of the advertisements for that particular method and technique, we, we, it reads along the lines of culti uh, develop, uh, bring out more energy, introduce and bring in more calmness, recharge your batteries, as I saw once day, one, one of the TM advertisements say. And what one would ask here is, fine, to renew one's energy, to use the processes, in this case of mantra meditation, for that kind of renewal of energy, but one would ask, to do what? to do what with it? To work harder, to make more money, possibly at the expense of other people's livelihoods, if not their lives? So again, in any kind of work, we want to be looking at our motivations, 
at the intentions which come from us and if in the process of meditation we feel more vitality and more energy coming through in our life wonderful but how is it being used what kind of direction is it going in how is that manifesting in life one of the nice things about the tradition the Buddhist tradition and, uh, and it, r it works and runs um, quite across the board in this is that it has the capacity for uh, um, a spiritual life which is very serious and profound and deep but also a spiritual life which is also to be enjoyed and as the Buddha was asked himself why do, why do people lead this way of life and including ethics and including awarenesses and inquiry and exploration of life and looking into the nature of things and his comment without a moment's hesitation it is because it is the happiest life to live it is the most enjoyable way of living and certainly always that spirit of all of that does have to include a sense of humor and just recently as a very small example and it's on this uh, piece of uh, paper here some of you are, who uh, use um, computers and maybe tuned in or connected in with some of the international networks of information which are traveling along these computer lines and there is one in fact connected with, uh, uh, for, with Buddhism and a Canadian um, professor was asked some questions and you can, you can put them out on the computer and then from different sources you can get a reply and there is quite an extensive international network which is taking place <laughs> and this is extensive network included um, one, one question and a, uh, a uh, professor of uh, Buddhism practicing uh, Buddhist um, replied to it the question which came uh, was I have read a I read about a bodhisattva named Avalokashivara who is he and why does he have such a long name? <laughs> Avalokashivara, this, and uh, this is a reply from the Buddhologist. Avalokashivara is the name of a bodhisattva who took a vow to help any sentient being in distress who called his name for help. Re re realizing realizing that he would be overwhelmed with work if, if he assumed a name a name that sentient beings in distress could easily pronounce <laughs> he, 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 took, he took the name Bodhisattva Mahasattva Arya Avalokashivara in Tibet he goes by the name Chenrezig but in order to make this relatively easy name more difficult to find in the telephone directory, <laughs> he spells it as S-P-Y-A-N hyphen R-A-S G-Z-I-G-S. <laughs> Despite these clever moves to avoid easy access, he remains one of Buddhism's most called upon bodhisattvas. Then the person says, I have heard that Avalokiteshvara takes on different forms in different ages and different cultures. That's correct. In China, for example, this bodhisattva 
took the form of a woman with the name Guanyin. And in Korea, she is known as Kwansun Posal, and in Japan as Kanong. Has she ever taken on a form for North Americans? <laughs> yes, in California, she is known by the name Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> She, she performs all manner of acts of kindness for sentient beings in distress, especially her publisher, her publicity agent, and her banker. <laughs> but her best-known work is with animals. To give just one example, she, sp <laughs> she spends most of her time out on a limb in order to teach a form of the Dharma that is strictly for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> I have another one. I will, I've, try, I've tried to do my best to re weave this in to the talk. There's another one which is a gem. <laughs> I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> so sometimes in this relationship to our way of being in the world and the participation in it, we get this message. There's something which we have to do. There is a certain trust in that, a certain faith, and we begin to explore this doing process. In that very activity of what we are engaged in, in doing, we say, hopefully to ourselves, I don't want to be satisfied with anything less than the best. I don't want to be satisfied with more energy, I don't want to be satisfied with calmness or reduction of stress, or some insights into my personal life, I don't even want to be satisfied with just living a relatively peaceful and harmonious life. One can go and probe deeper and further than that and probe right through and discover what full realization is. And sometimes in a rather natural consequence of these kind of loving and supportive and spiritual uh, environments, there comes about not only a meditative awareness but also some reflection in a rather heartfelt way, some reflection our way of being in the world and particularly wondering, hopefully, what is the ultimate truth of things? What is the, what is the highest truth? Is this highest truth, so to speak, is this available to me? And sometimes we may have a sense or the possibility of some availability, but in that, in, in even hearing the word, ultimate truth, in hearing the word God, in hearing the word the absolute enlightenment, liberation or whatever, the very word has a kind of association uh, a context uh, uh, a theme or some kind of potency for some people in such a way that on, even just on hearing the word in the moment of hearing there is a gap, there is a gap and there is a gap which says, but I am here. And that ultimate truth, that absolute, that um, transcendence, or whatever, that seems to be somewhere other to where I am. And the moment that gap is present, even if that gap doesn't have a word to it, like some of those words I just mentioned to you, not necessarily that one has a word to it, 
But when that gap is filled, the way that human beings know to fill the gap is by doing something. And one has the feeling, if I, could do, if I do something, if I can work at this, some way perhaps I can then dissolve this gap so that which the saints and the sages and the realized ones of past, present and future speak about, that gap will become dissolved and therefore the gap will disappear. But then, of course, sometimes human being says, if there is a gap and there is something which is beyond, something transcendent or ultimate, and I make that gap or that gap is hinted at in some way or other in the teachings, then it sometimes a person says, but if I move towards that, which is ultimate, transcendent, beyond, however we might describe, if I move towards that, it can appear that I'm moving away from the things of the world. I'm moving away to, from life to get beyond life, above life, to get into some state where I don't feel I'm trapped in this cycle of birth and death and coming and going. And then a, a human being says to himself or herself, but I don't dislike life. I don't want to. I don't need to escape into some absolute and some other state or realm. Actually, I appreciate life. I enjoy the things of life. Why do I want to es escape from that? Why do I want to set up a gap and try to get into something absolute? And then sometimes another person says, this life, it is exhausting. This life, there's so much suffering. There's so much hellishness in this life. And, and being trapped in this treadmill, being caught in this cycle day in and day out with just some relief here and there. Let me find a way, a way out of this problem of living which persists in human consciousness. And therefore thus the, the possibility of being out of it, for some thus becomes incredibly appealing. And therefore transcendence or going beyond or finding God or whatever really has some significance. And for another person says, no. No, I don't want to, to do that. What is it? Is there an imminence here? Is there an intimacy here? Questions, profound spiritual questions about our relationship to life, our relationship to the intimacies of life, our relationship to transcendence. What, what, what do we do with these dilemmas? What do we do with these paradoxes where we can feel inside of ourselves at times pushed and pulled one way or the other? I want to go deeply into life. I want to transcend life. And sometimes do. And all of, all of that uh, uh, movement that takes place, sometimes mind thinks, where is the way out of all this? What, what is it I need to understand? And then we hear messages too, that the possibility of that understanding, that realization too, can, doesn't have to be confined to listening to teachings. It doesn't have to be confined to meditation, to living in a community, or to, a or to any particular set of circumstances. And then one, one sees, we even another one of these um, 
contemporary gens, gems. How can I become enlightened? Every single activity of life can be used as a path to enlightenment. You can become enlightened by practicing the martial arts, and there are one or two who are doing it here. No, you can become enlightened by practicing the martial arts or learning to cook asparagus gourmet style, <laughs> or by listening to recordings of music by Philip Glass or Brian Eno, <laughs> or by taking shiatsu or rolfing treatments, or by going skateboarding or windsurfing or skydiving or bungee jumping. <laughs> But be sure to take off your glasses and take the Swiss army knife out of your pocket first. <laughs> In fact, whatever you like to do, this is the path to instant enlightenment. The person says, I love to read books and I think about what I read. It's wonderful news to hear that I can become enlightened by being a scholar. What on earth gave you that impression? <laughs> <laughs> the fact is, even though any sentient being can be enlightened, there is one minor exception, <laughs> scholars. There is the one thing that really will stand in, stand in the way forever of making any progress towards enlightenment. So whatever you do, don't become a scholar. In fact, scholarship is so dangerous that you shouldn't even read anything by scholars or listen to them speak. <laughs> More than that, you should earn as much merit as possible by telling everyone you know never to listen to anything that scholars say. <laughs> Does this mean that no scholars of any kind can become enlightened? If people are scholars of quantum mechanics, mathematics, law or cybernetics, they stand at least a chance of becoming enlightened. <laughs> but scholars of philosophy, religious studies and especially of Buddhism are completely beyond the saving powers of even Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> what, what exactly is a pure land? Pure land is an English translation of the Ch Chinese translation of the Sanskrit Sugavati Bhumi, which means happy land. This was... <laughs> This was originally the name of a theme park designed by Walt Disney <laughs> in collaboration with Shirley MacLaine <laughs> where people go and inhale nitrous oxide <laughs> and then die laughing. But eventually a more efficient way was found to enable people to amuse themselves to death, television. So now a pure land has come to mean any place that is, <laughs> that is entirely free of scholars or anyone else who might endanger people by making them think. <laughs> Wonderful. There is one more. I'll have to squeeze it in. So sometimes in these questions, what is this, what is this sense in life of transcendence, ultimate truth, going, as the Buddha said, to the farthest shore? What is this ultimacy that is, has been spoken of time in memorial? And then one says, but what is the connection with that and with intimacy, the intimacies with life? And sometimes these questions which touch one deeply, one wants to find out, sometimes it's as though we almost give up on ourselves, and I think in a rather humorous but 
pointed way there that sometimes then we find ourselves resorting to trying to find an answer in the book and sometimes that finding of answers in the book that finding the answers from scholarship that finding the answers from professors from the whole package of of words sometimes it leads to an awful self-deception because the self-deception which is such that the mind begins to think it knows and once the mind begins to think it knows it easily acts as a sophisticated barrier to what knowing means in spiritual life sometimes in that impact of the world of words and teachings of course include that and certainly the tradition the Buddhist tradition has looked at and explored the nature of language for 2,000 years its influence on human consciousness its value its relative application and has never ever failed to point to that which is beyond the language again and again so sometimes in the hearing of the language and hearing of what is taking place it's not to be left with the package it's to be left in our own nakedness our silence but then what happens to us inside of ourselves what begins to take place inside of ourselves and sometimes as the speaking in the instructions today and yesterday sometimes the emotional and the feeling life is significantly triggered in our experience and there are some of you here who have participated in retreats previously engaged in spiritual explorations and you have noticed in your life for perhaps days weeks or months periods of your <coughs> life which one says I feel the benefit of the spiritual life I feel much more calmness in my emotions and my feelings I feel a certain steadiness I don't feel quite so battered by the, my past circumstances and particularly for those people here who would describe themselves with their friends and who would be thought of by their friends and people who know you as being a feeling type an, e uh, an emotional type of person that sometimes in that there can be long periods of calm and relaxation and nothing too much boiling in, in the emotional life in that spirit in those experiences with the emotional life to where there's insight where there's vipassana that means where there's awareness sometimes with that one knows that this I this sense of I and me and mine even right in those emotions doesn't really apply there's just emotions flowing just emotions being experienced but sometimes we say to ourselves I'm experiencing my emotions I'm looking into my life emotions are moving somewhere I know deep inside of me that it's not so much I and me and my but this is going on and it doesn't seem fair that with the awareness and the investigation and the looking into things of one's life and the knowing that this I is just a thought it's just a, a letter in the alphabet it's just a deeply rooted idea which attaches onto emotions or body or thought so one knows that when it's seen that in one's experience and yet it doesn't stop the emotion yet there's still a rush inside yet there's still feelings of agitation and disturbance and conflict and confusion 
even though deep down one knows that this I has no real substance to it. It's a, a framework of language. And sometimes, as I say, it seems unfair that, that with all the looking that that should still be occurring. So then we ask ourselves, we look and ask ourselves, and then we say, how come I was able to pass days, weeks, months, years for some people in a relatively, not perfectly, relatively smooth, relatively comfortable life despite the challenges and the ups and downs <coughs> and yet now I'm here on this retreat or whatever I'm, and I'm experiencing all this going on inside. What, what has the practice done for me? And I think in those, those, or in such times of these experiences which take place, the thought is entering with the eye into this situation. And one asks oneself, is it honestly the feeling experience which is so difficult or so bad, or is it that there is a reaction taking place against this feeling experience and the reaction that's going against it is in some way or other saying this shouldn't be happening after all this time or all this practice or all these years the I thought says this shouldn't be happening and, and is it perhaps not so much the experience itself which is the difficulty the emotion, the feeling, the upset, the charge or whatever or is it that there is, a, there is sufficient amount of reaction which is intolerant towards it. Because one has developed a view of oneself, of how one should be in, in this moment in time. We sometimes have an idea about our feelings and our emotions, that the emotions and the feelings are the problem themselves, but sometimes we forget it's not that it's beautiful in life to be, so to speak, an emotional type. It's beautiful in life to be a passionate type, a, a strong feeling type there. But, of course, it requires that intimacy of understanding with that, and that understanding needs to include the movement of that internal life in that form. <coughs> Emotions are a form, and we need to understand ourselves of that form. There are other people who say, I'm not, I'm not an emotional type. I don't have a great deal of ups and downs in my, in my feelings. And, and the person would say, I am, I'm a thinking type. I'm always in my head. And this view, how can I get out of my head? Um, I hear of no mind and beyond mind and anything like that thought which one hears in expressed in the various spiritual uh, traditions going beyond uh, mind that in that very thought which occurs it, again it sets up a gap and the person says I'm, I am an intellectual I am in my head I am a scholar or whatever and that becomes one's view with that position with that identity of who one is that then that identity becomes the problem and because of that problem one wishes to get out of it wishing to get out of the status quo of our existence 
But not only do we do that to ourselves, of, of course, but also uniquely, equally, we do it to other people. And we're, we become masters uh, of pointing the accusing finger at various people and individuals and say, oh, you're always in your head, you're just, a, uh, you're just driven by your intellect, you're stuck in your thoughts, or whatever, in a very, very dismissive way. Is there any kindness in such accusations? Is there any wisdom in all of that? And just as one friend said, said to me, one of, uh, one of the Dharma teachers said, said to me, he had been ordained um, many, uh, many years and uh, extremely uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, human being and a very dear uh, friend of mine. And he said to me, he said, I've done all that could be done. I've done a great deal of therapy. I've done a, a great deal of uh, practices over many years. I was ordained many years. I have uh, looked, at, looked at my thoughts. I've worked with my feelings. I've looked into things, etc. And he said, I just understand that I am an intellectual type. That's all. I understand that is the kind of person that I am. And all the practices in the world and what everybody has told me that I should do, get out of my head, etc., etc. That is the fact of my experience. And I just wonder sometimes in this world of spiritual uh, exp exploration how easy it is either to point your finger at oneself in that accusing and judgmental way or to point the finger at another and keep focusing in some way or other on the limitation. Intellectual type, judged, limitation. Emotional type, judged, limitation. Or others, it can be bodily type, preoccupied with the body, focus on the body, judged, limitation. So in, in that, whatever we have some repetition of association with, whatever the eye repeats its association with, can be perceived as a limitation. Once perceived as a limitation, one will want to get out of it. Because of the way of looking at it, rather than the condition of the way that it is. It's the way of looking at it. Some people can do every practice, east, west, north, south, everything under the sun and it won't make a scrap of difference because there's something they haven't understood about life and being human. And I say sometimes, one more piece here, I could just... <laughs> Actually I turn to this because uh, at the moment I run out of something else to say and I can read. <coughs> if studying if studying is so dangerous, what are Buddhist sutras for? That is the Buddhist text. Let us never forget that Mara the tempter placed classrooms on university campuses in order to lure people away from the real purpose of the university, namely to support football and basketball teams. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
and to provide a place for special interest groups and secret societies named after letters of the Greek alphabet. In much the same way, Mara put words in sutras in order to distract people from the real purposes of sutras. What is the proper way to use a sutra? Sutra is talk, for those of you who... Uh, is, is the talks of the, the Buddha and other sages. What is the proper way to use a sutra? There is not a single way that a sutra must be used. Sutras have many, many purposes. Space permits mentioning only a few. You may wrap sutras in silk and do prostrations to them, <laughs> or put them in vaults and circum circumambulate them. You can take care never to put them on the floor or to point your feet towards them. <laughs> you can make sure you never take them into a toilet room or any other filthy place. You may even chant them, provided you do it in a language that you don't understand. <laughs> if you must chant them in a familiar language, be sure to drown out the words by banging wooden fish, metal gongs and big drums while you chant. You may even copy them and distribute them to others, so long as you write them in an ornamental script that no one can read. <laughs> Sutras make great gifts for people dying of cancer. In fact, you can do almost anything with a sutra except read it. <laughs> Think about its meaning and try to apply its teachings to your own life. There's some truth in that for Buddhism, for sure. But sometimes in the depth of insights and understanding which are, have been communicated from one tradition to another, that we've ended up worshipping the paper upon which they are written and forgetting the profound insights which are there and that is why the tradition has said of any tradition that the oral transmission is the transmission which matters because it's the one which communicates the heart uh, and awarenesses of a human being with other human beings and therefore it's a not just a black and white version, so to speak, that one can find in the text, but it's something which is coming through hearts and minds of, of, of speakers and uh, listeners. In that, just uh, there, as I mentioned before, there is this gap which takes place, and anything with the eye can be used to make a gap. I am in my head, I am in my emotions, and with that there is some wish to move away from that then we ask ourselves, as we were discussing and exploring uh, yesterday evening in here, ask ourselves, this eye which wishes to move away from sometimes gets deceived. It gets deceived by sometimes having some experiences in the daily life, in the meditation life, in the listening, which seem different from the normal day-to-day -day experience. And so I had this experience and it had nothing to do with my thoughts and my brain and my intellect. I had this experience and it had nothing to do with my emotional life and all that goes along with it. And because there's a certain difference of quality of that experience, it then becomes the measure and then one starts saying to oneself in the spiritual life, I should, I should be able to have that experience as the continuum as the permanent experience that's somewhere in that that's what I'm striving for 
And therefore, I don't want to be locked into my emotions. I don't want to be locked into my intellect. I want to have that which I tasted of. And the gap's been made in the tragedy of one's own experience has made the gap. <coughs> and then that fades away, that experience, such an experience, if it occurs. And then one finds the, ra the, the, the rather familiar a way of being in the world with, as a heartful kind of person, as an intellectual kind of person or whatever. And one says, oh, I'm back where I was. Is it we are asking of ourselves in our normal human condition, in fact, too much of ourselves, and thus also too much of others as well? What's wrong with intellectual life? What's wrong with feeling life, emotional life? Do we have to try to get out of it? Is that going to be a never-ending task? Is that what somebody, people have been saying to us, what we have to do? Or is it perhaps that discovery and realization has nothing to do with getting out of transcendence, beyond, ultimately, whatever, and it has nothing to do with going deeper and deeper into, as, and as it were, going through it. Do you understand? Is it that the dualism that religion has generated, that spirituality has generated East and West, itself is a problem, itself is a paradox and a distraction to a human being whenever there is the language of ultimacy and there's one gap being made and then there's the other language of intimacy and imminence and going into and another whole stream of language which is made. Would we dare abandon both completely without any question? Nowhere to go. No direction to move in either up and beyond or deeper into. Not mad to get out of the world of thought, not mad to resolve all of the feeling and emotional life which is occurring, saying, yes, in the nature, in the organic movement of things, this is going on. And so rather than seeing that we can, as it were, bring ourselves to something, rather perhaps as was mentioned the other evening, emptiness makes all things possible. That this very thought, I am always in my head, as some people have said here today, I am always in my head, that this itself is just a thought which says, I am always in my head. And for another person, my emotions disturb me. And that very thought again acts as a way of making a problem out of something which essentially is not a problem, it's a movement. Where is the problem? 
Where is the problem when a thought is just a thought? It never was anything else. No one can be stuck in their head. There's no truth in such metaphors, in such rhetoric, in such labels, in such judgments, in such acts of blind discrimination against oneself or another. Nobody can be stuck in their head. It's an empty thought. Nobody can be, be, oh, I'm just trapped in my emotions, I am stuck in my emotions, I'm just, I'm so emotional, etc., etc. Movement of life is showing itself. And what allows that movement of life to show itself, it is the truth. The truth permits it all to show itself. Why fight it? Why get compelled to keep feeling I have to do something? The truth is just revealing itself and in its revealing of itself, whether whatever type you may describe yourself, all of it's held in the truth of things. And one just knows the contentment of it. And one can hear from the teachers do this and another teacher do that and similar and dissimilar messages but essentially the truth speaks through the human and we can be okay with who we are that's all oh so okay with who we are that we know that that okay is the truth made manifest Buddha, if I may use a lovely analogy of this, beautiful analogy of this truth made manifest, truth realized, truth understood, which we know what we are or who we are and, and all this process that's going on. He said it is like, he gave three analogies, he said it is like a person who has been in prison and then the day after years in prison comes out of prison. He said to the monks and the nuns and the lay people listening, he said, what would, the, what would the feelings be of that person at that time? And, and they said, it, it would be a relief. A relief. Doing this, doing that, and caught in this and caught in that. All those ideas finished with such a relief. We acknowledge who we are, what we are, we're okay. As human beings, we are okay. Then he said, what would it be like for a person who had been in hospital for a long time and then the day comes when that person is well again and can finally leave the hospital? What would the, what would the sense of that person be? It would be a relief. The struggle with oneself was over. What a relief. We are okay. Who we are, the truth shines through us and all equally. Then the Buddha said, what would it be like for a person who had been in debt
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.